Welcome to Household Hermeneutics, where we're going to take you on a journey through systematic and historical theology and help you apply it to your daily family life. Hey guys, welcome back to episode number six. We're talking about this, our second part in the canon of scripture. Today, we're talking about the New Testament, and um, it's been a little while. Yeah. Since we've done an episode. We took a little break, kind of by accident. <laughs> uh, yes, it was definitely by accident. Uh, we have been, if you follow along on our travels, where you're traveling around the country full time right now, um, and the last two months have been absolutely jam-packed. You could say that. And so the last several weeks, every single night, it has been on our to-do list, basically, to yep. uh, get this episode recorded. And that hasn't happened. But I know a lot of you guys understand that with families and busyness and yes. all of that. So we are sorry for the break. Um, I am going to warn you that we are hopefully through the rest of 2021, we'll be back to a regular schedule of every two weeks. But I will say, uh, give us a little bit of grace through the end of this year because we are also coming up now to the holidays. Um, we are in what, 10, 11 days? We are getting to Jason's parents' house in yeah, North Carolina. 11 days. And so hopefully we'll have a little bit uh, better routines there, but we're also going to be seeing his parents and his siblings. And um, we are very excited for that. And so, uh, yeah, give us a little grace, but we, are, we will be shooting out January with regular schedule. So for sure, yes. at least come by January, we'll have ev all the episodes regularly scheduled, um, which is really not probably the worst timing because I feel like everybody gets really busy in December. So if you get a little behind, um, that's OK, because we are, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> we are very behind. So I just wanted to give you guys that update that um, if you're missing the consistency, um, just wait, because January we will be totally back. We're going to get everything pre-recorded again. We're going to get re-caught up uh, this fall, man. It just... It put us behind. It's been flying too. Yes. I mean, I know that's so cliche to say. Like, time's <laughs> flying. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, it really is, though. Like, I don't even know what to say about it. It's November 20th. Yeah. That's Can you insane. believe it? Okay. So, uh, just wanted to give you guys that update. We are really excited to head into kind of the next season of this podcast. We thank you guys for all of your feedback. Uh, you guys have just been amazing. And this has been a fun episode and or a, a fun podcast. And I am personally excited because we're going to kind of move not past the fundamentals, but into kind of more um, more controversial topics, I would At say. At some points, yeah. Uh, which sure. is going to be kind of fun. I mean, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. So today, though, we, like I said, we're doing part two. We're talking about the New Testament canon. Um, and this, I really like this conversation. We have a lot to cover today because we need to feel confidence in the New Testament. Yes, 100%. And... That's what we're going to talk about today. How do the books that are in the New Testament, why are they there? Um, and how do we have confidence that they're supposed to be there so that we know that they're scripture, that they're God's word? And that's what we're going to talk about. And that's what we need to make sure that we are instilling that confidence in our children as well. Exactly. I hope last episode that we gave you enough information compellingly enough that you now have confidence in those 39 books of the Old Testament, mm -hmm. that they are the right ones, uh, that there weren't ones that should have been there that were skipped or that there there are ones in there that shouldn't be. So hopefully you have that confidence going forward and hopefully we can give you the same confidence in the New Testament today. So on the topic of the writing of scripture, Wayne Grudem said, the writing of scripture primarily occurs in connection with God's great acts in redemptive history. The Old Testament records and interprets for us the creation of the world, the calling of Abraham and the lives of his descendants, the exodus from Egypt and the wilderness wanderings, 
the establishment of God's people in the land of Canaan, the establishment of the monarchy, and the exile and return from captivity. Each of these great acts of God in history is interpreted for us in God's own words in Scripture. The Old Testament closes with the expectation of the Messiah to come. The next stage in redemptive history is the coming of the Messiah, and it is not surprising that no further scripture would be written until this next and greatest event in the history of redemption occurred. End quote. I think that's really telling, and the point he's trying to make is it makes sense then that scripture in the Old Testament ended, the canon closed, when they had that all that history and everything and that expectation of the new Messiah coming, and then it didn't start up again until he came. So that's why we see in the Gospels, the beginning of the New Testament, that's exactly what we start seeing is, is the birth of Christ. Let's move on to a quote by Greg Allison, who said on this, Following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, together with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to initiate the church, a new phase of revelation began. While relying on the authority of the divinely inspired Hebrew scriptures, the church was conscious of being the recipient of new truth concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ and Christian mission in the world. It makes a lot of sense then in this case of what between what Wayne Grudem and Greg Allison said that the New Testament is very primarily made up of books written by the apostles themselves. So the question is then, why can these apostles be trusted as inspired to have written these books? Just like the Old Testament, the prophets who wrote a ton of it were very closely trusted by the, by the Jewish people that they were being inspired by God to write these books. It was very understood that they had kind of come, descended, you know, from uh, Moses and Joshua and then, the, and then the prophets. And so in that same tradition, the apostles were very much trusted as inspired for these books. So the question is, why? So let's look at what William Ames said of inspiration in his writing, The Marrow of Theology, that he wrote in 1629. He said, But divine inspiration was present among those writers in different ways. Some things were altogether unknown to the writer in advance, as appears in the history of past creation, or in the foretelling of things to come. But some things were previously known to the writer, as appears in the history of Christ written by the apostles. Some things were known by a natural knowledge, and some by a supernatural. So the reason that this becomes important then is that by the second century, there were heretics that were claiming that there was discontinuity between the prophets of the Old Testament and then the new writings by the apostles in the New Testament. So they were kind of calling into question um, if there was unity there, if these were actually the same message. And so because of that, these early Christians really had to think through um, and defend the unity of the prophets and the apostolic writings there. Yeah. So we see Tortullian, who was a early church father, and um, he wrote this speaking of the early church or of the church. He says, the law and the prophets, she unites in one volume with the writings of the evangelists and apostles from which she drinks in her faith, end quote. Yes, exactly. And Arrhenius, another church father, said, I have pointed out the truth and shown the preaching of the church, which the prophets proclaimed, but which Christ brought to perfection, and the apostles have handed down, from which the church, receiving these truths, and throughout all the world alone, preserving them in their integrity, has transmitted them to her sons. So the important thing we see from those two early church fathers writing that um, is that they saw unity. So they saw the unity between the Old Testament right. and the New Testament exactly. writings. So even then, early on, 
they saw that and they saw that these words were divinely inspired by God, um, that they were truth, that they were scripture. So this is not something that Christians in the 1900s all of a sudden said, oh, those yeah. words were scripture. Yeah, uh, this was something that was accepted very early on. The idea that the New Testament is inerrant and the actual words of God is not a new no. idea. And it was accepted at the time. And that is really important because you will hear... Um, those who are not Christians and uh, those in the progressive church, um, you will they will call into question some of those things. Yeah, exactly. um, and it's not hard to go back into the history and to the writings and see that it's just not true. They did think that it was scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just important to see from uh, church history as well. And so Jesus says in uh, John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, end quote. So we see that it was the Holy Spirit, which is the helper there um, in writing the scriptures, which, again, we, you know, we would say is divinely inspired. Right. Even more importantly than what the early church fathers thought. Right. Jesus himself and the Mm -hmm. apostles seem to think so. Mm -hmm. When you read the Bible itself, which should be the ultimate authority on this topic, we see also in John 16, 13 and 14, it says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus himself is establishing in these verses that the Holy Spirit would empower the apostles to learn and remember what they saw, which are very important skills to enable them to write them down. Well, it's important to remember. So when you look at John 16, that second quote that Jason just read, it says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And we have to remember in scripture, we often read ourselves into the scripture. We are thinking of ourselves there, but Jesus is talking directly to the apostles. Yeah, he's not talking to me or Jamie or you. So it's, it's, it's important to when you read those verses, it it just there's a lot of clarity that comes yes. with that because he's saying he will guide you apostles who I am directly talking to face to face right now. Um, and I am declaring these things to you. And so it's just it, that's a good reminder to see that because often we tend to read ourselves into scripture mm-hmm. instead of first considering who was it that Jesus was actually talking to in the moment. Exactly. And in the interest of not quoting for a while, because we've done a lot of actually quoting here there are other passages of scripture like second peter 3 2 and acts 5 2 through 4 where the apostles themselves claimed authority that was equal to the same authority that the prophets had in the old testament so there's homework for you look up those passages and you can see what i mean <laughs> yeah and then other good examples are um we see paul frequently claims this authority as well yes. that paul is um that he is speaking on this authority it is not his own words it's not his own uh authority he is um speaking through the Holy Spirit. Another interesting thing to see in the New Testament is when one writer references another writer's New Testament book and they actually reference it as scripture. So you can see, for example, mm-hmm. in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, Peter is actually referencing something that Paul wrote and he calls it scripture. Mm-hmm. He's classifying mm-hmm. it as scripture. So it's sort of very internally proofed in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, that is a really important, important distinction because we see that from those earliest writings of when literally the New Testament was being written, they were already accepting other works as scripture and as canon right there. Yeah. So the apostle Peter is assuming and understanding that Mm -hmm. Paul and what he wrote was scripture, was Mm -hmm. inspired scripture. 
Mm-hmm. And that is it is a really important distinction. It might seem minor or not that important. Um, but when you start coming up against progressive Christianity's claims, those who are not Christians, um, who will really try to call into question and, you know, make claims that, oh, they didn't even they just thought they were writing a letter, um, yeah, you know, and exactly. stuff. And so it is important to have these defenses. It's important to understand why we see the New Testament as canon. Yep. Uh, again, I, I think we talked about that a lot in the last episode, but I can't remember because it's been so long since <laughs> we recorded. Too long. <laughs> uh, but I think we talked about about all of that yes so because of these reasons the internal biblical reasons as well as just looking at history and the early church fathers themselves and the internal consistency and referencing as scripture the early church readily accepted those apostolic writings as the canon of scripture so you might be noticing if you've been following along that we've only been talking about the books written by the apostles Mm -hmm. That's not all of them, though. There are 27 New Testament books. There's Matthew and John and Romans through Philemon and James and First and Second Peter, Revelation. So out of those 27 books, there are five which were not directly written by apostles. And so um, of those, you, there's actually a lot you can study on the canonicity and seeing, you know, how they decided each of the books. And, you know, there was councils that came together and said, yes, we these are the ones we think. Um, so even with those, all of the 27, you can read a lot about, you know, why they accepted it, why they think it was authentic, all of right. that stuff. But there are five that come into question um, that were not written by apostles. Yes, I think it's the, it's the most easy to accept and understand the apostolic authority that we've just been talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And that covers 22 of the books. Mm-hmm. But there are five that we need to look closer at. Mm-hmm. And so um, of those five, Mark, Luke, and Acts, they were not written by apostles. Um, they were accepted very early on as well as scripture. Um, and it's likely because of the close association of Mark with Peter and of Luke with the apostle Paul. Yes. So they had that very close apostolic um, witness there. They had firsthand accounts that they were writing off of mm-hmm. then. And then in, in a very similar way, Jude was accepted pretty early as canon. And it's likely it's it's theorized that it's because of Jude's close relationship with James and the fact that he was Jesus brother. So these writers being uh, Mark and Luke and Jude had very, very close relationship ties with apostles. Mm hmm. And they would have they would have been going off of firsthand accounts. Yes. And that is something that's really important to remember, too. These were still these were not men um, who were writing a hundred years later. These were men who were writing and going off of firsthand accounts who uh, firsthand accounts of people who um, saw Jesus and went with Jesus and traveled. And they were writing it in the day that there would have been hundreds of witnesses still right. alive who attended those talks by Jesus, who yep. saw the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Um, and so there were they were writing this at the time those people were literally still alive. Yes, they were still living. Obviously not all of them, but they were in that same exact generation. And that's really important to remember as well, because we don't have tons of writing from the first century of people saying, wait a minute, I was there. That didn't happen. Um, And they were writing this in the contemporary times. And so that is really, really important to remember as well. And that is another really good defense when looking at the canonicity. So then that leaves us finally with the book of Hebrews. Yes. The most tricky one to talk about. Mm -hmm. So it was early on urged to be considered canonical by a lot of the early church, uh, mostly because a lot at the time thought it was written by Paul, an apostle. Very simple, easy answer. 
But there's actually always been a question around whether or not the book of Hebrews was actually written by Paul or by someone else. So R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Hebrews, wrote that since the letter does not tell us the name of the author, there are actually quite a number of suspects. He said, quote, in the Eastern Church, by the time of Clement of Alexandria and Origen, the epistle was attributed to Paul, although both early church fathers recognized the stylistic differences between Hebrews and the other Pauline epistles. In the West, Tertullian proposed Barnabas, a Levite of the Jewish dispersion, who is noted for his encouragement of others, end quote. There have also been other, many other people suspected of being the authors throughout history. People have thought that maybe Luke or Clement of Rome wrote it. During the Reformation, Martin Luther suggested maybe Apollos, who we read about in scripture, um, a Jewish Christian from Alexandria, that maybe he wrote it. Uh, he was skilled in speaking and he was well-grounded in the scriptures. You know, he's the person people are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. Like he was someone that thought people thought maybe he could have written it. And then even in more modern times, people have suggested Priscilla or Epaphras and Silas even, but we really don't know. And actually, I think one of the more modern ideas that is very popular and that does seem pretty likely. reasonable to me, mm -hmm. very likely, is that Hebrews was a speech or a sermon by Paul but it was actually written down by Luke and that could help to explain the literary differences mm -hmm. because when they say Paul, it really seems like a lot of what Paul preached about and talked about mm -hmm. and wrote about. It really seems like him. That's why a lot in the early church thought it was him, mm -hmm. but it's just literally so different than his other writings mm -hmm. that it's like, what did he have like a stroke and then write differently all mm -hmm. of a sudden? So it does make sense that it could have been written down. Yeah. He was giving Luke. a speech and wrote Luke transcribed yeah. it or whatever. Yeah. So bottom line is historically speaking, Paul has the strongest claim to authorship. It's just not strong enough to be 100% conclusive, which is what makes Hebrews so tricky. Well, so talking about the 27 books and even the five that have a little bit of question marks on them. As far um, as they're ap apostolic. Yes, about who wrote them. Yeah. Uh, it brings us to the main issue at hand. So what exactly makes a book in the New Testament can canonical? So Wayne Grudem says, for a book to belong in the canon, it is absolutely necessary that the book have divine authorship so we want to make sure that it is god ultimately who yeah. wrote these books regardless or, of the human who wrote it right it was inspired directly by god and that's that's the most important thing right that's what we want to make sure that we're not including works by men who just were writing their own thoughts down because that's not good right um and so we the, the the criteria that the church came to beyond it being divinely inspired how do we make sure of that um there are two things that they came to yes the first is apostolicity was the book written by an apostle and if not was an apostle closely associated with the writing mm -hmm. that is why as we were talking the first four books of the five that we we brought up at the end the the, the writers have very close ties to apostles so it it helps in the apostolicity of those books and then secondly antiquity has the church historically recognized the voice of god in the writing the church used these criteria to recognize and affirm the books that should belong in the New Testament canon. Mm -hmm. And they did this by meeting in councils. Yes. And, and we're um, going to look at a few of those. OK. Yeah. I can't remember. Jason's the one who writes. Notes, and so <laughs> then half the time I forget. Um, I did read through the notes. I just don't remember. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's an important to the discussion as well. But I will wait until we get to that point. Yes. Yeah. So. It's pretty easily established that those 22 first books and even some of the five that the apostles who we have seen wrote with divine authority and the church readily agreed with it that those books are canon. 
But what of these others that were not written by apostles that we've been discussing, like Hebrews? We've said that those other authors have very close ties to apostle. But beyond even that, the church had in many circumstances, and this is kind of what you were saying earlier, Jamie, there was personal testimony of apostles still living that could vouch for the divine authority of the book in question. Mm-hmm. There, Like you were saying, tons of witnesses, other apostles still living at the time. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of vouching that could be, you know, mm-hmm. truth telling that could be actually called in to, to ask and to mm-hmm. check these books. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Paul would have affirmed the legitimacy of Luke and Acts, uh, possibly Hebrews as well. Peter would have affirmed Mark. Um, So we do have the apostles there who we know walked with Jesus, were given that, um, you know, commandment to write those things down. And so we have that we have that very early on again, which is what, you know, what we see. And another consideration made by the early church was that of these books being, in Wayne Grudem's words, self attesting. Exactly. So the writing itself must bear witness to its own divine authorship. And now this is where also we kind of enter into this conversation that as Christians, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit um, and we are also trusting God to to make his truth and words known to us. Right. And so this is not just purely a human standpoint of us deciding exactly what's in there, but also God ordering it so that his perfect word is preserved, handed down for generations uh, in the correct way that he wanted as well. So as Christians, we have to remember that as well. We're not just going off of scientific and historical writings. We are approaching this also with the Holy Spirit as Christians. Yes, exactly. And while that might sound... I don't know, a little squishy and trite or something. It's absolutely important and necessary for this entire conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all these considerations that we've been talking about, the, the self-attestation of the works uh, and the, the the authorship being apostolic or closely related, all these things are what the early church used to determine the canon. They readily accepted the books by the apostles and they took deep account of apostolic endorsement of the other books in question. And also they looked really closely at internal consistency within scripture so that they could determine these books. Okay. So let's get to the conversation that I was trying to have five minutes ago um, (laughs) about uh, when we actually had the canon written down as canon, when we got together, when the church got together and decided, yes, these are the 27 books. Um, Why don't you share a little bit about kind of that process? Sure. Well, so there was obviously a very slow and painful process, especially compared to what we have now with, you know, modern printing presses and digital communications and spreading of information, Uh, you know, in this time, They were hand copying the New Testament books and then circulating them throughout hundreds of churches, like over all the known world. Mm -hmm. And this process took a long time and they were affirming authentic books while also trying to reject false books. And this this effort ultimately culminated in the early church finally agreeing to the New Testament canon. Mm -hmm. There were a number of kind of like iterations and lists before they came to the final concrete canon that we have now. Mm -hmm. And so let's look at a couple of those really quick. The very first one in AD 170 was called the Muratorian canon, and it had most of the books we have. However, it did not include Hebrews, James, or 1st and 2nd Peter, and 3rd John. There was another list in the third century. Origen had his very own list that he came up with, which was even closer to what we have now, but he was not convinced about the canonicity of Hebrews or 2 Peter or 2 and 3 John. Eusebius, church historian, 
had his very own list in the fourth century, and his list only disputed James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, and Jude. So as you can see, the lists kind of got closer and closer to what we have now, but even sometimes, like with Eusebius, all of a sudden threw some doubt on Jude. So they were getting closer, but it was it was not a perfect process of just perfectly scoping down. What we see, though, in AD 367 is Athanasius, the church father, he published a letter that actually had the exact 27 books that we have today, and it represented what the Eastern Church at the time believed was canon. And then the Western Church, represented by the Council of Carthage, just 30 years later, published an exactly identical list. So at that time, in the late 4th century, we came to the list that we have today as canon. So we just named a bunch that the, those lists didn't include until finally the 4th century. So, so let's look at those. We've already discussed a bit of why they were controversial in the first place, but let's look at some. So James was on a couple of those lists as excluded. It was controversial because at first it was unclear whether it was truly written by James the Apostle and not some other James. There was just a, a question of the legitimacy of the authorship. Once that cleared up, that book was universally accepted. Second Peter is another one, and it was dif disputed as there were actually other writings of Peter that were clearly not canonical. So Peter had other writings, um, which I mean, I'm sure a lot of these people, Luke, yeah. who was a historian, they a that was yeah, not they had other writings. Um, they were not canonical. Um, and so some churches hesitated to accept it at first, um, but then first and second Peter were then um, accepted as canon from yeah. there. And that was very much for the internal consistency of mm -hmm. these two writings of Peter clearly belonged together and within the mm -hmm. confines of the New Testament. Now, I think this one is funny because um, I, I feel like I'm like, oh, I could have written this point. Um, <laughs> second and third John were so short and they seemed unimportant. And so some early church churches kind of simply overlooked them. Because yeah. if you look at, you know, second and third John, they're so tiny. They're this little yeah, paragraph. I think third John is like seriously <laughs> one chapter. It doesn't even have a chapter heading. Yeah, it's no, it doesn't. And it's really short, although yeah. I love the book of third John. And so that's just funny that they just were like probably thinking thinking, oh, these are little scrap writings yeah. or whatever. Um, and so that is a reason there. Um, but it's important to see with all of those that there was not other major issues. Yeah. There wasn't these, um, they, they weren't looking at these books and saying, oh, these have teachings that nowhere else in scripture has, or these have, you know, there was none of those questions. Um, it was more that they were trying to have, oh, out of an overabundance of caution, making sure that they should be included and yes. where they should be, which is important, I think, to look at. Well, and I personally, I mean, I think, as I've studied this, I've come to an even greater appreciation for for the actual like arduous yeah, like how efforts that went through, yeah. like that the early church and all, all these different councils actually all the effort they went through to mm -hmm. get to get the list to where it is mm -hmm. and, and the faith that they had in the Lord that he would make clear what his, what his canon should be, the actual God breathed inspired scriptures should actually be in the mm -hmm. New Testament. But to actually then read about it, which I've been doing quite a bit of, was actually like, wow, like it gave me even a greater appreciation mm -hmm. for the whole process that they went through and just the the, the careful care and, and deliberation that they took. Well, and one of the important things is, is there were writings of the day that were rejected immediately. Yep. There were writings that the early church universally accepted as not canon, yep. not divinely inspired. And you will hear people today say, oh, this book is supposed to be scripture. And yet it teaches stuff that's clearly not biblical, mm -hmm. clearly not biblical. Yeah. And it's like, oh, but it was, you know, people thought it was at the time. And it's no, the early church recognized it immediately, immediately as, as heresy. heretical. Yeah. Yes. And they did not accept it. And that, we need to remember 
those things. And mm-hmm. as Christians, we need to know that. We need to know that so that when we encounter those false writings, um, those false teachings, when our children come across that heresy, straight up heresy are these things. They're yeah. really bad teachings um, that we can recognize that immediately for yeah. what they are and that we can stand with the early church and say, no. Those are not the writings that are divinely inspired. Yeah, we as a modern church today should stand just as strongly and fiercely Mm -hmm. on these inspired books and words of God uh, and and not allow that to be altered. Mm -hmm. And actually, that kind of takes us into our next part of this discussion. I think this is the concluding portion is now that we've looked pretty darn closely at how the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament books were ultimately decided on to be canon of Scripture. So the question then becomes... Will there ever be any more writings added to the canon, or is it closed for good? First of all, let's start with the Bible. The Bible itself speaks to this. We see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This passage is actually contrasting the former speaking by the prophets and then the latter speaking by his son, quote, in these last days, which seems to strongly indicate that God is speaking to us through Christ. And this is the ultimate and conclusive form of God speaking to mankind. And according to, to quote Wayne Grudem again, because he's the MVP of this episode, I think (laughs) this is his greatest and final revelation to humankind in this period of redemptive history, end quote. So we actually, I'm not going to quote these, but we I see this idea emphasized over and over again through Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2, and we also see it, and I actually will quote this part, in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, this passage in Revelation is obviously primarily referring to the book of Revelation itself. But think of it this way. It's it's definitely not insignificant that this statement, this warning, this actually pretty dire warning is at the very end of the final chapter of the final book in the New Testament. I think it's very appropriate to take this warning and apply it in a very secondary way to all the scripture that came before. And even if that's a little hard for you to take, this idea is already backed up elsewhere, like what we read in Hebrews. And if you want to read further on that, read Hebrews 1 and 2. So with that said, we're going to take a look specifically at a couple of books that were not included in the canon. This is exactly what you were just talking Mm -hmm. about. These are good ones to know um, to help us build our confidence that only the right books were put there in scripture. And we should have confidence because of God's faithfulness, um, which was the same all throughout history is the same today. God is faithful. um, And it's very easy for me to believe strongly that God who controls all of history would preserve his word for us in an accurate way. That's not a stretch. That's not a leap. I feel like God, you know, in in scripture, it says that God counts the the sparrows. Um, He feeds the sparrows. He counts the hair on your head. Whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm mixing up the scriptures. of down to the things, minute yeah. details, which should comfort us in our anxiety and in our fear and in all of that. And it should also help us with our confidence in scripture. Yes. And that's why it's called faith. It is also faith because we we believe we have faith in God in that. 
So like you were just saying, Jamie, for other writings that were considered, but then strongly rejected as heretical or just maybe not even heretical, but just not inspired in the same way, Mm -hmm. like other books written by Peter, for example, or maybe by Paul, like there was other writings of theirs that they decided like this may be good, but it's not inspired. Well, there's other there's history books. There's there's books written of firsthand accounts of that time period. There are there are other writings, but they're not divinely inspired to where God was speaking through these men writing this down for all of church history. Yeah. And then, and this goes to partly the the witness that they had of the actual people who are still alive at the time, as well as the internal consistency that they were very, you know, what they wanted it, that was very important. They were the writings that were actually inconsistent or that actually contradicted stuff. And so we're going to look at a couple right now. For example, The Shepherd of Hermas, that's the name of a book. And it taught, quote, the necessity of penance And another quote, the possibility of the forgiveness of sins at least once after baptism. Obviously, those are non-biblical ideas. And the Shepherd of Hermas also confuses the roles of the Holy Spirit and God and the Son in the Trinity. So it was just a mess. And the early church fathers rightly rejected it as not canonical. Right. Because scripture has to be in line with scripture. So any books that are there um, need to align with the whole entirety of what else scripture teaches as well. Um, Another example, this is one you will hear of often now is the gospel of Thomas. Then if you don't know the books, if you don't know the 27 books, that could sound like one of them, the gospel of Thomas. It sounds like it could fit. Um, But it says at some point in the gospel of Thomas, it says, since Peter said to me, let Mary go away from us for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, lo, I shall lead her so that I may make her a male, that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, now, a couple problems with that. <laughs> that could maybe be a gospel for today that people <laughs> right. want to hear, um, but that is not in line with scripture. Um, and the gospel of Thomas, man, is one that people talk about all the time. Yeah. And it's like, nobody's read it. Okay, really? Like, yeah, if you had read it, you would not cons- like be thinking, hmm, maybe it's No, and and Christian. Christians don't think that, but the progressive church um, and non-Christians, atheists, those who want to attack Christianity will bring up, will draw out the gospel of Thomas yeah. um, to, you know, say, oh, but what about this? And um, it's it's just very clearly it is not. Um, yeah, it is not scripture. There has also been I'm going to say this at the top of my head and I can't remember anything exact because I'm tired. Um, so look <laughs> up all this stuff. Um, but there has also been more recent writings um, that people will discover, quote unquote, discover right. um, that they say, oh, my gosh, look at these lost writings that should be that are scripture. Um, and then they're proved to have been written 300 years ago yeah, um, or, or, or even less 50 years ago you know, or whatever. Um, so we just we need to be on guard for these. If there is oh some fancy new writing that you've never heard of or your kids are discovering this, uh, let's dig into it because yeah. there's going to be some evidence against it yes. uh, and there's going to be reasons and things like that. Exactly. Now, what we want to leave you with is is this basically if you take anything away from us quoting and rambling today, take the 27 books of the New Testament. Read them, study them, love them, and trust that they are the exact 27 books that you are supposed to have, that they encapsulate all of the words of the Lord that he wants us to have Mm -hmm. today and all the way throughout history in the past. Mm -hmm. There are no other secret writings that were missed Mm -hmm. that we just, oh, if only we had that, we would know, and oh, life would be so much better, and as Christians, we'd have an easier time, and and likewise, there's no books in there that... uh, that we that we actually are following in error that they actually shouldn't be in there. Um, we should trust that through this very arduous and 
full of effort that all these people went through to actually come to this canon is the accurate canon. God ordained and led and the entire process was in his hands. It was directed by him. And now we can just rest easy in reaping the benefits of that. And also to tie this into the whole family discussion, let's give the same confidence and reasons why we should have this confidence to our kids so that they don't have these conversations with other people or come across something that casts doubt on one of these things. Let's actually give them the reasons why they can actually trust it. Well, and this is, you know, you look at uh, the Mormon church and Joseph Smith, um, really interesting reading about his life. Um, Joseph Smith discovered writings under a rock, um, you know, so he says, um, and that was scripture. And now Mormons have all of their own writings and their own teachings in the Book of Mormon. Oh, I guess he discovered the Book of Mormon was what I, it was. I think right? he actually was and inspired he, to write it. No, but he discovered some writings. It's very strange. And then, We're actually, now I'm would- forgetting. At some point during this podcast, I think we'll actually cover some topics like that. Yeah, maybe have an episode on Mormonism, yes. where they go where they go wrong. Exactly, and, and likewise for other, for other religions as well. But I think mm-hmm. that would be worthwhile to cover. But but yeah, we have because well, Mormonism is one that's hard because they talk so much like us, yeah. and they believe in Jesus, so they say, except their Jesus is not anything like our Jesus. And so um, it's It's really important to be on guard because Mormons will call themselves Christians and will say, no, we are too. We're just kind of a different denomination. Right. Uh, and it's not true. It's a false religion. And we need to be on guard for that. We need to know that. We need to know why. We need to know what their writings are, what their writings say. Yeah. Um, and we need to make sure that we are um, not only for our own edification, for our own family, um, but also for witnessing so yeah. that when when you come across a Mormon, uh, you know how to say, well, would you like to take a look at my Bible and see what it has to say about Jesus? Because right. we've got different definitions going yeah. on. Yeah. Well, and uh, this this is actually very fits well in this conversation about the canon is uh, there are other, you know, like the the whole like the uh, when you look at world religions, there's a lot mm-hmm. of those that are very foreign to Christians, to, uh, to mm-hmm. Western Christians. You know, you look at like you look at like, you know, Buddhism or, uh, you know, other religions where it's like they, there's nothing related to mm-hmm. scripture and, mm-hmm. you know, to Christianity. But there are those like Judeo-Christian religions mm-hmm. that they kind of come from a similar tree. And I think that for Christians or people exposed to Christianity, there can be more confusion around that mm-hmm. when you're looking at, you know, um, uh, Judaism mm-hmm. and Islam and and Christianity. But then even off of Christianity with, with you know, uh, Latter-day Saints and mm-hmm. with, you know, all those I definitely think we should get deeper into those at some mm-hmm. point, but that is why we should trust that these 66 books we have, mm-hmm. that is it. Mm-hmm. We don't need to add anything mm-hmm. because we have the truth here. Mm-hmm. And the scripture says itself in Hebrews and in Revelation, we're done. Don't add anything. Don't take anything away. Mm-hmm. Let's trust that and let, let's let be strong on that. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what I think in a couple of these introductory, we're only on episode six here, um, introductory episodes, it can sometimes feel a little basic that it's like, yeah, okay, the, yeah. the Bible, we're, really, we're spending so many episodes yeah, it's like, on this. Okay, Jason and Jamie, we get it. Like, <laughs> trust the Bible. It, I, I understand that. But we started with the scripture and, and the actual, like, you know, the, 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 looking at scripture as, as a doctrine mm-hmm. so that we could then have that as our foundation. Once we've established and you mm-hmm. can fully understand and have confidence in scripture as your foundation. Okay. Now let's look at other doctrines. Like now next we're going to look at God. Mm-hmm. Pretty big topic. I would say mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're going to look at his attributes and other things about mm-hmm. the Lord himself, but Everything we talk about in those episodes, mm-hmm. we can trust because we're going to be pulling all of that information. How do we know about God? From scripture. So from we kind of need to yeah. trust scripture before mm-hmm. we go there. Mm-hmm. And that's why we've organized this in the same way. And I hope that 
no like you know i would understand it if if people are getting like okay we're talking about scripture we're talking about scripture <laughs> we're almost done talking about scripture a few just a couple more episodes left on it but it's so important that's why mm-hmm. so yeah study it dig into it there's a lot of other stuff this was definitely not exhaustive there are so many other things that you could kind of dive into on these topics but thank you guys for hanging out with us today thank you so much for the grace and being so terribly behind on this episode right. We are hoping the next episode will be out in two weeks-ish. Um, and then uh, we're going to go into December and being super busy at Jason's parents' house, which is going to be great. And so um, we are going to get the episodes out when we can. And then January, we'll be back to our regular schedule. For, for sure. sure. Yeah. Um, which will be good. And we'll be able to kick off the new year with you guys. Um, I will say at some point, we'll have some fun announcements for you. Jason and I have some fun and interesting things up our sleeves for household hermeneutics next yeah. year 22 is going to be an awesome year for this yeah. podcast and for everything else we're doing we've got some really cool ideas so we'll uh we'll let you guys know but if you're looking for some more resources uh for discipling your family for um being firm in your theology for knowing god more with your heart and your mind that is centered around your family Oh, we've got some stuff coming up that's going to be really good that we're really excited for. Yes, but we can't talk about it yet. We can't, and we will let you know. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. Make sure you listen in to the next episode as it publishes, episode 6.5. If you don't already listen to these, Jason does a fabulous job with doing a family discipleship, uh, 10 or 15 minutes or so, yep. where he we sing a couple of songs together. You're going to memorize scripture together. You're going to get a little mini recap lesson of this big lesson aimed more at older teenagers and adults. Um, And then in that episode, it'll be, you know, kind of a little short episode that you can bring the whole family around, do a little Bible study. Should be more kid friendly for younger kids. Yes. And yet the whole family can listen in. We've had people ta- say uh, email us and let us know that they're a married adult couple with no kids and they listen to the dis- family <laughs> discipleship episode together, which is great because it's singing hymns and yeah, memorizing, memorizing verses and verses and, and even a catechism question and answer we throw in there. And yeah, yep. that's valuable. I want to do that too. Yep. So it's great for kind of just bringing the whole family around together. We want to help you to be able to facilitate family worship in your home and get more comfortable with that. We know it can be hard to get into that routine. So we don't want to be re- a replacement of doing any family discipleship on your own, but we want to help be able to facilitate that and um, kind of get into a rhythm because we know that it can be hard and difficult. And we want to be a resource to help with that. Yes. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We'll see you guys hopefully back in a couple of weeks, but definitely if not in January. Yep. All right. Bye. (laughs) See ya. 